here's the next Breakfast with Jesus talk in which I look at um, Hebrews chapter 8 and its use of Jeremiah 31. A little introductory note, in my enthusiasm during the talk I refer to Genesis 31, obviously I mean Jeremiah 31. So with that change in mind, listen and enjoy. Thanks. Well, welcome to the uh, next Breakfast with Jesus talk. I'm sorry if this one's a little bit delayed from what I intended it to be. Life's, uh, life's been busy, uh, which I'm sure you can all um, empathise with. The last talk was a really uh, important one. It was, on Jerem- it was on Jeremiah 31, on the New Covenant. And the, the main idea there that I put forward was that the New Covenant is not just... Um, an extension of an old covenant with new benefits. It's actually a new grammar around the language of covenant. Um, normally, I think what we tend to do with the concept of covenant or, or any agreement is we turn it into something that's contractual. And what that means is that there's an if-then uh, arrangement to the contract. And um, that's, that was indeed how the original covenant with the people of Israel was established. However, the new covenant is not established on an if-then logic. It's actually entirely built around grace. And insofar as it's located to any if, uh, the text itself gives us an if. And the if is not our obedience. The if is creation, which... Genesis 31 goes on to talk about after the introduction of the new covenant. It says words to the effect that if if you can rearrange the cosmos, the sun and the moon, if you can do that, well, then this covenant might not stand. During that talk, I mentioned that uh, this passage is quoted extensively in the book of Hebrews. And um, I said, I would look at um, how Hebrews handles it. I think it's probably the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and it's in, it's in Hebrews chapter 8. And um, let me, it, it takes up, well, probably at least half of chapter 8. He, he quotes it in full. Uh, now, um, What he says is, in Hebrews chapter 8, is uh, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For 
if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, now he quotes Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And that's what I talked about, how unlike it is on the day when I took them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. In other words, the if-then conditions of that old covenant were broken. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will preemptively make them obedient. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbour, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. Notice how the knowledge of God seems to be the goal of this covenant. Um, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. And he finishes the sentence with this astonishingly audacious statement, particularly audacious in in the um, Mediterranean culture so, so dominated by Jews. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So that's the entirety of Hebrews chapter 8. So let's just first of all just, what I want to talk about is how does he um, handle Jeremiah 31, the writer of Hebrews, who I think you will know that in what I'm about to say, um, I gave extensive talks on Hebrews. They're on Gospel Conversations uh, website if you want to follow them up. This is somewhat of a summary of them. The context of the book of the the flow of the argument in Hebrews is something like this. Essentially, he's saying, don't underestimate Jesus. He has eclipsed the law. He's eclipsed all moral systems, all religious systems. And he's introduced a new paradigm for existence, for spiritual, religious and existential, secular existence. But there's a problem. And the problem is that this Jesus is, as it were, under the radar. Um, there, at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, there's, I mean, there's no externalities, there's no religious sites, there's no temples, um, there's no outward show of rituals, or there's no priestly orders with magnificent um, costumes and clothing. There's no, there's no, not a physical presence politically or, or, or militarily. There's no place. There's no social status. There's no societal foothold. It's very ephemeral. And um, so how can this ephemeral Jesus be the king? Um, that was, I think, the problem that he was addressing to these, uh, to these listeners. But, but, uh, and I think these listeners were, you know, sliding back into the old covenant, probably keeping um, at least a vestige of Judaistic compliance. Um, and he says, amazingly, in chapter five, actually, if you continue in a religious mindset, I'm not just saying Jewish, a religious mindset, you won't get it. So what I mean, I would translate that into our framework by saying, if we continue in the contractual, if-then mindset, morality mindset, 
Actually, he said, astonishingly, he says, you will not get this gospel. That very religious mindset will impede you. It'll block your understanding. Moral systems will block your understanding of this new covenant and of this new high priest. So if you look at Hebrews' catalogue of sins, they're clearly not sins to do with typical morality. He's not talking about Greek orgies or visiting temple prostitutes or deceit and avarice. Um, he's not talking about divisions and backbiting. No, he, he's talking about a moral, a religious sin, the sin of not believing what God has done and not believing in how gracious it is. Instead, we are implicitly relying on laws to ingratiate ourselves with God. He says this kind of condition type thinking, contractual thinking, will block your grasp of the gospel. That's actually, I think, the pivot point of the book in Hebrews 6. And then he goes on and spells out the problem with the old covenant, the covenant that Jeremiah was, uh, was, was foreseeing would be eclipsed. With it. So this old covenant, what's wrong with it? And this is very, very important. Um, in Hebrews 7, he says, he introduces this very important word, perfection. If, in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest? Uh, he said, and then he says in verse 18, um, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. So the problem that he's addressing is not a moral problem. In other words, uh, by, by moral problem, I mean um, we have sinned and fallen short of some requirement and how is that gap going to be made up and how are we going to be forgiven? He's actually not talking about that. He doesn't have that in view. It's not what he's saying, which is astonishing because this is the most extensive you know, Jewish book uh, in the New Testament. And so we do well to take heed of his critique of the old Jewish system. It was not, you failed, how do you make the ground up? The problem is an effectiveness problem. He's quite clear about it. It is not achieving its goals. So it's far broader than just moral failure. It's actually failure of purpose. And what is the implicit goal? The goal is this word that is repeated in Hebrews of perfection. It appears God wants to make things perfect, and in particular, people perfect. Now, this is a vital concept in Hebrews and in its argument. And uh, we need to look at what the word means. And we particularly need to, to, to recognize this does not equal the forgiveness of sins, which I think would be a traditional reading. You know, so making things perfect means how do I get rid of the sin problem? Why do I say that conceptually that uh, definition doesn't work in Hebrews? The answer is the concept of perfection is also, not also, is mainly applied to Jesus. 
So if you've got a concept of this perfection meaning forgiveness of sins, the point is Jesus was, quote, made perfect. He wasn't presented as perfect. He, he developed into perfection. It's very clear in Hebrews. So it cannot mean uh, Jesus was perfect because he was divine and the son of God and he was perfect. It doesn't mean that at all. He became perfect through what he suffered. That's what it says in Hebrews. Now, the word teleosis, which has its root from the Greek word telos, is a word to do with um, maturity, consummation, um, growing up into the end for which you were made. Um, the, um, the Vines Dictionary says it's used of persons primarily of physical development with an ethical import. It can mean fully grown or mature. So it's the difference between being a child and a teenager and an adult. There's this idea of growing into adulthood. And so, so what the law apparently is not doing is allowing human beings to grow into the image of God and adulthood. Uh, now, this aligns with the purpose of God that we have, we've seen in Jeremiah, that, that in Jeremiah, I think it was seven or nine, I forget which, that we might know God, we might understand God. Um, so if the goal is perfection, and perfection as in maturity and in grasping godlikeness, then the enemy that Hebrews presents uh, is actually death rather than sin. That's very clear in Hebrews chapter 2. It's remarkable. Hebrews chapter 2 is an astonishing chapter. I'm not going to go into it in detail now, but it's close to my favourite chapter in, um, in, 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 in the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews 2, in general, Hebrews draws on two or three huge texts. There's the Jeremiah one. The other very big one is Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. And really, really excavates all the spiritual messianic layers of meaning in those two Psalms. But in chapter 2, he's quoting Psalm 8, and he talks about our enemy the enemy of humanity. And the problem in chapter 2, the problem in chapter 2 that is presented is not a primarily religious problem, a sin problem, a forgiveness problem. It's not, the, it's not a forensic legal problem. The problem is we were made to rule, but it looks like we're not. And we're not because we're in the kingdom of death, which is the devil's kingdom. That's what it says in chapter 2. So the problem he's putting forward is a problem to do with mortality and mortality stops us from apprehending and grasping all that we were made for. That's the argument. And this new covenant is introduced because the old covenant failed to make mankind perfect. So um, uh, that's really where he gets to in chapter 8. Now, what are the features of the new covenant that he, he draws our attention to in chapter 8? Um, it's very, very densely packed, brilliantly argued um, prose, but the feature of the new covenant is that this new covenant wasn't just a repackaging of old covenants. 
everything changed. It was a paradigm shift that introduced not just a new priest, but a new priesthood. Um, I like the term Douglas Campbell used. It's a new operating system. We needed a new operating system. Now, what was the new operating system we needed? Again, the book is absolutely clear in chapter seven. We needed a new operating system of eternal life. And the, the synecdoche or symbol he uses for this new order, so it wasn't like Jesus is just a high priest, not saying that, he's saying he's, a, he's got a new order, a new way of working, is Melchizedek. And what that is shorthand for is the power of an indestructible life. That's what he says in chapter 7. And in chapter 7 and verse 28, as, which immediately precedes what we've, what we've read, it says this astonishing phrase that the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Um, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So this is an example of what I was just talking about, about perfection. This is not presenting the divinity of Jesus. It's Jesus in his humanity has been made perfect forever. And he has become the, uh, uh, the forging mechanism by which all humanity can be made perfect. And this in particular implies he has introduced um, resurrection life. This is what he has accomplished in his humanity and on behalf of all humanity, a path for quote unquote perfection. This picture of uh, the, emer the, the, the new order of things is a, is a very person-centered picture. It is, it is a landscape where the image of God as the ultimate human being is dominating reality. That's what he talked about when he talked about a tabernacle um, in the heavens, um, th that there is a, a new, he's talking about the cosmos being humanized according to the divine image of God. I'm taking the word tabernacle there to not mean a church or a building, but the whole system of creation as our dwelling place. Um, well, so when he turns to this new covenant in Jeremiah, a covenant that will be based upon better promises, as, uh, the, the, the if, as it were, that the writer to Hebrews sees in the contract. The if is Jesus. Uh, the if is God himself. The if is God's oath. It's entirely based on God's oath. The then is we are now participants in, in this new order of things, this resurrection life, this power of an indestructible life. Um, so it's far grander than just talking about sins being forgiven. It's actually the life of God made accessible, made, made available, uh, and eventually the life of God dominating and pervading the entire created order. So that's how the writer to the Hebrews picks up this incredible promise in Jeremiah of a new covenant. And in this new covenant where God graciously indwells us, writes his law inside us, in our hearts, in our spirits, um, so that we can be made perfect. The phrase that 
Hebrews uses this astonishing phrase of made to be fully human all that we were created to be in the image of God.